Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's in the passage quite a lot, we'll see. And we know what fear is, don't we? Uh, We know what it feels like to be afraid. We know what to fear and why we fear at certain times. But if fear is to to be stopped, we need something, an, an antidote, if you like, toward that fear or for that fear. Something that will take the fear from us. That antidote usually comes in two forms. Either it comes in a greater fear that comes along to take the initial fear away. Or it comes in the form of a a greater comfort that overwhelms the initial fear. That may at one time have paralysed you. Let me give an example of that uh, the first one there. If you see a little grass snake, I'm trying, you know, we're in a picnic this afternoon, a little grass snake pops along. It's very unlikely in Wimbledon, but it, let's just use our imaginations if we can. So a little, little grass snake, you know, six inch, non-poisonous. At that moment, I would be utterly paralysed. Snakes are not my thing, okay? I cannot handle the snake. Now, I'm paralysed by that fear. I can't get the crisp into my mouth. Just utterly transfixed am I on this little snake. Now, for that fear to go, either a greater fear is to come or a greater comfort. The greater fear comes. Now, I'm paralyzed by the little grass snake, but then into my focus, there is a two-ton lion behind it, hungry. You see, the, the, the greater fear overwhelms the initial fear, doesn't it? It's a pretty obvious, very silly little illustration, but you get the idea. Fear can be stopped with a greater fear. Or a greater comfort. How does the greater comfort work? Well, the greater comfort assures you uh, the fear may still be present, but you know the greater power of that comfort. Let me give you an example if I can. Another silly example, but let's work with it if we can. I remember a flight I once took. It went from London City Airport to Jersey. And if you know that, you've done that trip a number of times, some of you. But a a number of years ago, it used to go like this. You went to um, London City to Guernsey. And then to Jersey. It really adds up to the excitement of the journey. But, you know. And what happens is you land in Guernsey, a few people get off, and then you do this five-minute, what's well, about three-minute you know, island hop from Guernsey to Jersey. Halfway across the channel, it was getting a bit rough. Pilots, you know, put your belts on. It's going to be fun. Landed in Guernsey. Whew, that was good. People get off. And then a storm really came in. And I remember the pilot saying, the captain saying something like this. I think we're in for a very bumpy few minutes. Hold on tight. Do not be afraid. We will get there. And we did. We did, utterly. The lady beside me was in floods of tears in the crash position (laughs) when we landed on Jersey Airport. There were many, many hardened businessmen in this little kind of small jet, jet aeroplane who were very pale-faced and nauseous, even more nauseous than Matt this afternoon when I told him what I'd been through this week. But there we go. We feared the plane was going down. I, I mean, it was the best aircraft ride I've ever had in my life. Uh, we feared death, many of us. It was very exciting. But if the fear is to stop, we need a greater comfort. We need an antidote. And the comfort there was tarmac on Jersey Airport, which is a fantastic thing. After a journey like that. Now in our passage today, Jesus says, do not be afraid. He says it a number of times, three times actually. And let's see what Jesus suggests, what we may fear and the antidote to that fear. But firstly, let's remember where we've come from 
uh, in this section of Matthew's Gospel, if we can. Just think back. If you need to, if it's helpful, look back as well. Really from chapter 8 through, uh, that's where we've kind of, that's the context of what we've been looking at. Firstly, Jesus has proclaimed that he is the king of God's new heaven, eternal kingdom. Now he proclaimed that, spoke it, um, in chapters 5 to 7, on what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. He demonstrated his power over that kingdom, in that kingdom, as the entry point to that kingdom in chapters 8 and 9. Through miraculous deeds. Scan through. You look at the titles if you want. The NRV is helpful on that. It shows you all the things he did in chapters 8 and 9 to demonstrate that power. Chapter 10 then. We get now to his earthly mission. Where he sends out with that authority. With the proclamation of the kingdom which he's already been proclaiming. He sends out his disciples to do the same. And we see the nature of their mission. We see it's who it's for in chapter 10 verses 5 and 6. We see what they're to do in chapters 10, verse 7 and 8, what they're not to do in verse 9 and 10, and then how they're to use their time in verse 11 to 15. Jesus then begins, and what we're in a section of chapter 10 now, to warn his disciples to, to what they're to expect as they go out proclaiming his kingdom. This is, if you like, where the rubber hits the road. He graphically outlines the hardships that the disciples could face. And he begins to outline some of the real fears that they may experience. At the end of the section we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus in verse 24 and 25, just cast your eyes down there. He shows why they will be persecuted. Simply, if the boss is persecuted, so will the followers be. So imagine as the disciples sipped on their cafe lattes, ready to be dismissed for duty to proclaiming, the kingdom of God, to the lost sheep of Israel, their hearts must have sunk, mustn't they? As Jesus recalls those words of verse 24 and 25. And so verse 26, Jesus says, do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. See, he begins our passage today linking back to what um, he's been speaking about and said previously. Despite this daunting task of making the gospel known in Earlsfield, in Southfield, wherever you live, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Three times, look at it. Verse 26, verse 28, and verse 31. Do not be afraid. The task was to proclaim that the kingdom of God was near. It said that back in chapter 10, verse 7. That's what they're proclaiming. They knew what persecution they were going to expect. Jesus knew that, but he still says, do not be afraid. Why? Well, I think Jesus gives four reasons why the disciples should not fear as they're sent out. And we've got those on our sheets. Um, I hope that's helpful. A little outline at the back there. I'm not sure if it's coming up on the screen today, but they're there on the back. Four reasons. Four reasons why the disciples should not fear as they're sent out, as we are sent out, to proclaim the kingdom of God. So firstly, do not be afraid. Firstly, everything hidden, every hidden thing, will be made known. Cast your eyes down to verse 26 and 27, if you can, again. The disciples, after hearing Jesus from verse 17 through to verse 25, could could easily, you can imagine, couldn't you? we may as well get out of here, boys. Let's run. It sounds awful. Fear is a perfectly natural condition for all of us to experience. Especially when faced with persecution. And that's what these guys were facing. 
Now, the gospel till then had been spoken with some degree of secrecy. Look at verse 27, what I tell you in the dark. He's saying, we've been keeping it quiet, lads. But now is the time for it to be made known. In the end, chaps, he's saying everything will be made public, uncovered. So now's the time to speak this kingdom message in the daylight. Don't fear the persecutors. They're going to come because they're going to say a lot of stuff to you in your lecture halls, in your workplaces. They're going to mock you. They're going to say you're an utter lunatic for coming to church at four o'clock and in a little place like this. They're going to really, really take the rip out of you at times. You may be the laughing stock, humiliated in front of your social networks and groups. But all the lies, all the verbal abuse that these guys will throw at you, well, that will be uncovered by the light of judgment. That's what Jesus is saying here. Everyone, one of us, all of us one day will face that judgment and everything that people lambast you with, that will all be uncovered. So he's saying, Jesus here, expect persecution for being a follower of Jesus, yes. But know that any abuse that is thrown your way will be uncovered. It will be revealed. And in so saying, you see what he's saying there, the message? You will be vindicated. You will be vindicated. It's interesting, Luke, in the parallel passage of this um, little section in Luke, Luke chapter 12, he applies this to the personal conduct to the disciples. Now, he's suggesting that they shouldn't be hypocrites. It's the interesting sort of kind of aside that isn't in, in Matthew's account, but is in Luke's. They shouldn't be hypocrites for covering up their knowledge of Jesus. Luke shows it's be, it will be futile to do so because like the revealing of the, the, the kind of the revilement that people put on you and that all the lies they tell about you. Also, if you are a hypocrite and cover up the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that you know, well, that will be revealed too at judgment. See, we can read this passage at two clear levels, I think. It primarily describes this historical mission of the, the 12 that we're reading about here. But we also must read it because of what it has to say to the continuing mission to the church. As I said over the, over the weeks, it, as you go through Mark, Matthew 10, there's this con, uh, kind of opening up. It's directly to the, the disciples, apostles to begin with, but then it, and it begins to include language like whoever and anyone. Again and again and again and again, as you get near the end of the passage, it's including all of us, all of God's church throughout all the ages. And therefore, the questions I ask myself in the light of these two verses is, is questions like this. And you need to ask them yourselves, I guess. Do I fear the mockery, uh, the temporary mockery, of those that I share the gospel with? That's question one, isn't it, obviously. I think question two comes pretty much because from the parallel passage in Luke 12. Is this, I think... Do I hypocritically withhold the saving gospel of Jesus Christ that we know has the power to save? And my only excuse is fear. That's a challenge there, I guess, isn't there? Surely our duty to follow the Lord Jesus Christ must override our natural reluctance. 
And we must, as Jesus instructs in verse 27, proclaim from the roofs. So the first antidote to fear is to recognize that all will be revealed. All will be revealed in the light of judgments. The lies, the deceit that's said about you, absolutely, but also, maybe, the hypocrisy. It will all be revealed. Now let's look at the second point. They can kill the body, but not the soul. Look at verse 28. Let's read it again if we can. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As people who live in the West, we find it difficult to understand fearing for our lives, don't we? For proclaiming Jesus. That's a difficult concept. But clearly for the disciples, it's a real personal, daily struggle that they would have faced. Matthew stresses it really poetically. He puts parallels between body-soul, soul-body. It's a what's called a chiasm, but don't worry about that. Also the contrast of do not be afraid and then be afraid. You see those kind of little contrasts? He's very poetic in the way he's written it down. And all these show, they're put down in that way to show God's ability to destroy both soul and body in hell, rather than just the body, which is all persecutors can do now on this earth. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He knows the fear that they would have feared for their lives as they dare to proclaim Christ. He knew that the early church were going to face these fears again and again and again. History tells us this. This is some of the things that the early church faced. And boys, this is shocking. Some of the Christians were sawn in half while still alive. Some were covered in pitch and spitted like pigs on a roast. Some were lit as torches in Nero's garden. Some had their limbs torn off, tied by four wild animals and wrenched apart. Some were tied with molten chains. Some of the early church had holes drilled in the top of their heads and molten lead was poured in. But Jesus, do you you get the audacity of this? Jesus dares to say to the disciples, they knew this, they would have been facing it. He dares to say, look what he says. Don't be afraid of that. That's like going to a picnic in Wimbledon Park on a Sunday Slightly cloudy afternoon in June. Look what he says. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's audacious. And we don't like to even mention the word, do we? It's like the you-know-who, the Lord Voldemort of the church today, isn't it? We dare not speak its name. Hell. You kind of whisper it. You know, we don't want to say it hell but can I say if you're a Christian here today hell and understanding hell its depths its pain its torment for the eternal reprobate it ought for the Christian I think elicits such an immense love for God such an appreciation of our saviour the Lord Jesus Christ I think we sometimes Just avoid it too regularly. And if you're here and you're shocked and you're put off, please for a moment consider its reality, if you can. 
I don't think hell ought to be brushed under the carpet of a kind of a church political correctness. History tells us that the churches have done that, have all died and collapsed over the centuries. It ought to be in our devotions and our conversations. Now hear me right, not to brag, not to condemn, but I think to just to cry out in humility and thankfulness for the grace of God that has saved us from its horrors. So often people have distorted the reality of hell. Mark Twain once said this, go to heaven for the climate and hell for the company, but how wrong could people be? And that's throughout literature, throughout the TV and throughout film, everyone sort of downplays what hell is really like. Heaven is a place of of company, not, not hell. Revelation 5 and 7, there's the multitudes gathered around the throne, praising God in this place of glory and grace. It's true, perfect company. Hell is isolation, therefore. It's the opposite. Isolated agony, both mental and physical. And perhaps I think we understand from biblical accounts the physical torment of hell. And it sounds terrifying with the pictures we're given. For example, if you just flick on a couple of chapters to Matthew 13, you'll see there a very well-known picture. We won't turn to it now, but look, for, look at it later. Hell is described there as a blazing furnace in the parable of the weeds with, with this weeping and gnashing of teeth. We understand the physical torment because it's readily there in the New Testament. But it was interesting reading Jonathan Edwards this week on the mental anguish. He did a lot of study on this. Let me give one example which he referenced to, to the mental anguish of hell. I don't want to dwell on this, but I think it's helpful. He asked to consider family. He had eight children, I think it was. He understood what this meant. He asked to consider the example of family. What, if, if you were in hell, what having family would mean? Because if the rest of your family were in hell with you, then you would feel an eternal guilt an unbearable weight of responsibility. That they were there because of your neglect, of your not wanting to make the gospel known to them. That's if they're in hell with you. What if they were in heaven, Edwards goes on, and you were in hell? And Edwards points to, again, an an infinite mental anguish. He said it would be similarly unbearable. For you would eternally long to be with them. A longing that could never be satisfied. And that would torment you for eternity. They would be around the throne of grace. Praising with the great multitudes. And yet you would be suffering. Having never received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Born for you on the cross. One example of the mental torment of hell. Either way, family, it's awful. And look what Jesus says in our passage. He just says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. What he's saying here is that this fear that you may fear as you walk around Earlsfield and you say, we've got this little thing, do you want to come to it? The fear that you fear then is nothing. It's nothing. It may be a fearful prospect. Whatever torment you face, and here the context is martyrdom. 
is such a less fearful prospect than honouring. And, and if you like, staying on side with God, that's the big point here. Now, it's easy to say when we're tucked up in our comfortable London lives, but today, if you take the average of the year of all the people that are martyred as Christians around the world, 350 Christians will have died today. 350. For just proclaiming that Jesus was their Lord and Saviour. And doing exactly what the disciples are asked to do, verse 7, to say that the kingdom is near. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. The Greek there literally means actually to eternally send away, to depart from, to be dismissed. He's not saying the destruction uh, that God brings at judgment is just, uh, it ends. No, he's saying it's an eternal dismissal from God's goodness. An eternal departing from the kindness and grace of God. So you see, the second antidote is that greater fear that we mentioned right at the beginning. it's, It's not the fear of the people we should be worried about, rather the fear of God. That's the greater fear. That's the antidote to that fear. Rather, God who can do much worse. That's the one we should fear. Martyrdom is the soft option. It's the, if you like, the easy ride in comparison. Thirdly, more briefly, let's look at the Father cares for all his creation. Do not be afraid, for the Father cares for all his creation. Verse 29. Let's read that show again. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now, if I was a decent minister right now, I'd have the London City Gospel Choir sort of marching in the front. See all the eyes on the sparrow and he's watching out. No, you don't know the song? It's a great gospel song. I'm not going to sing it for you, so don't panic. Sparrows, though, what are they? They're essentially the first century baked bean. Okay. Imagine there's a kind of a supermarket warfare going on here. They're working out, you know, Sainsbury's are doing it for two for one. Probably Asda are doing buy one, get 80 free. Free delivery with a bottle of champagne. You know, it's that kind of stuff. They are, if you like, you know, the, the, the cheapest commodity that one could buy for temple sacrifice. Okay, they're, they're, they're that cheap. As Matthew indicates in verse 29, they're, they're the cheapest edible thing that you, you know, that you could get. That's what he's pointing out to. But Jesus is saying here, God's sovereign care is, is greater. Uh, that he, he, he cares for all things. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. If God cares for the lowliest sparrow, the humblest of his creation. How much does he care for the pinnacle of his creation? You and me. Some argue God is only bothered about the big things of this world. However, his sovereignty does goes beyond just the life and death issues. Look at verse 30. He goes right down to the minutiae, doesn't he? And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, I know in me speaking that, it kind of loses the weight of the verse. But you get the idea, don't you? That God sovereignly cares for every detail of your life. J. 
Jesus adds the personal individual touch, doesn't he? Verse 29, look at it. He says, your father, yours, personally, you, this sovereign God, this almighty, powerful, creator, sustainer God, cares for the sparrow. And he cares for you. So verse 31, do not be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. A personal, almighty, sovereign God cares for you. And Jesus says to his disciples, proclaim the kingdom of heaven. It is at hand. Disciples, now, us, in Earlsville, do the same. Proclaim the kingdom. And do not fear, because if God cares for such small things in his creation then have confidence today, tomorrow, as you invite your friends to things, that God has his sovereign care over all the elements of our lives, including here specifically the proclamation of his kingdom. So the third antidote to fear is that God sovereignly cares over all of his creation. Know that God is sovereign. And lastly, this kind of kicks it all into touch, doesn't it? Verse 32 and 33, Jesus will acknowledge everyone who acknowledges him. Do not be afraid, because Jesus will acknowledge everyone who acknowledges him. Let's just read again, verse 32, 33, to remind ourselves. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. So the fear that the disciples have felt, they've had three antidotes so far. There's not a do not fear in these last couple of verses here, but if you like, it's the catch-all, it's the end statement. If you were any doubt of the scope of this passage for us, then if you like, the beginning of verse 32 should absolutely nail it for you. Whoever acknowledges. It's not the the disciples of this specific period, two and a half thousand years ago, It's not just them, it's whoever. You, if you acknowledge Christ, me, you, your granny, the person you work with, they need to acknowledge Jesus before others. There's great comfort in verse 32 as we can be fully assured of our position before the Father. Jesus is our sole mediator He alone is the arbiter of our eternal destiny. Acknowledge me, Jesus says. And he will acknowledge you. He'll stand before the Father at judgment and say, yeah, he's one of mine. He trusted in me. He understood what I did on the cross for him. And what my blood achieved and bought. Redeemed, as Nathan pointed out. Acknowledgement of uh, his saving lordship, however, should show in our lives as we acknowledge him to those around us. And that is exactly what Jesus calls every one of us to do in verse 32. Acknowledge me. Acknowledge me. But with the comfort, there's also a challenge here. It's obvious, isn't it? Look at verse 33. It's there. It reinforces the warning of verse 28. There is a worse fate than human persecution. And that is to be denied before the Father by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing worse. Nothing in the whole of your life. The warning, the challenge is simple. Acknowledge Jesus in verse 32. 
If you do not acknowledge him and choose to deny him before others, well, I can't water this down. You have much to fear, don't you? And I guess some of us here just need to wake up to these realities. We may be feeling quite tired as Christians. Oh, we know what to say. We know what to pray. We know what to do in order to look good and right before everyone else. And yet I wonder, I wonder how much we acknowledge Jesus before our friends, our colleagues. I I can't make it any easier. There's no sitting on the fence here, is there? You may be lying on an operating table as I was this week. You may be in a a plane flying to Jersey. You may be in an office in London. You may be a teacher in a classroom. You may be a physio in a hospital. Walking the streets of Earlsfield with your pushchair, whatever it may be. Whoever you are and whatever your circumstances, hear the comfort of Christ acknowledging those who acknowledge him, him. But please, please, please. Hear the warning. Hear the warning. For whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. It's a sobering passage, isn't it? And so why don't we very soberly now, just in a moment of quiet, just just look down. If you want to chat to the person beside you, two minutes. I've got a bit of time. Why don't you just think, what is the thing here that really where the Spirit's really gone, oi, you, you you know what you need to do. You know what you need to repent of. You know how you need to change. If you want to do it in the quiet of your own heart, that's absolutely fine. If you want to chat to someone, absolutely fine. Why don't we just have two minutes of reflection on what we've heard. I'll forget.